Good morning. So for those of you who I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is James Jarden. I am the Reform University Fellowship uh, Campus Minister at Western Kentucky University. And um, I'm really happy I get to be here with you guys again this morning. I think this is my third time here. And um, I'm, uh, I'm excited that we get to open up God's Word together. So I want to encourage you uh, to don't be a stranger at the end of the service. Come over and say hi. I won't bite. I promise. Um, I'd love to talk to you if you have some experience with uh, you know, Bowling Green or RUF, or you're just excited to just say hi to a new face. Um, so come say hey. Um, so this morning, if you have a Bible and you want to open up and turn with me, we're going to be in Psalm 3, okay? So we're in Psalm 3, and I, I'm a kid of the 80s, so I can't help but think of, in terms of like pop culture references, I, I hear the Transformers theme song, More Than Meets the Eye, when I read Psalm 3. Because when you read through Psalm 3, on your first pass through, it is a psalm that you can apply very easily to anybody who is suffering through trial and tribulation. It doesn't really matter for any reason whatsoever. But when you read it over again and you understand the context, you see that Psalm 3 has something in particular that's really especially good news for anyone who has found, and there's a lot of young faces in here who may not be able to identify yet, or will find themselves overwhelmed by their own mess. Standing in your own wreckage, the direct fallout of your own sin. Psalm 3 has something really good to say to us this morning. So if you've ever been there, you may be familiar with a little bit of a cycle that kind of can happen when you find yourself sitting in your own mess. You can, you think about how stupid maybe you feel that you did this to yourself. And so the shame starts to weigh down on you because it is all your fault. And then you kind of get stuck there for however long. You know, sometimes it's a short season, sometimes it's a long season. But we get stuck in our shame. Because after all, maybe we deserve to be overwhelmed. We made the mess. Maybe we deserve it. So, you know, maybe I should feel bad. It's what we think. Um, maybe we're too ashamed to say out loud that we need help. Because if we say out loud that we need help, that means we have to own that we caused the mess. The end result is, is the thing that threatens to overwhelm you is that much worse as the compounding and paralyzing shame weigh us down. So whether it's broken relationships, financial debts or shortfalls, bad health choices, they're all catching up with us or any other variety of overwhelming troubles we find ourselves in, this psalm richly meets us in our trouble to remind us that the Lord saves his people. The Lord saves his people. So yes, in Psalm 3, David is uh, he's praying about enemies who are literally trying to kill him. But I don't want that to distract you because this lesson applies to many other things in our lives that threaten to overwhelm us as well. Whether it be physically or spiritually. Physically and spiritually. So all of us here either have or will experience this reality that we face overwhelming problems in our lives. How we face these problems directly relates to where we turn in the midst of them. So this morning, let's be instructed by the scriptures on how we too should respond when we're anxious 
about problems that threaten to overwhelm us, even when, maybe especially when, our problems are the result of our own actions. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read Psalm 3, and I'll pray, and then I'll say a bit more about it. So I encourage you to listen carefully as this is God's word. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We pray that the Holy Spirit would now open our ears, open our hearts, open our eyes to see what he has revealed to us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the reminders, the manifold reminders that we've already had in this worship service about how you are the one who saves. You are the one who, who comes down to us in our lowly estate, and you meet us in our trouble. So Holy Spirit, would you take this opportunity this morning? Would you strengthen the weak and the, wear, and the weary? Um, would you send your word as a hammer that breaks stone into pieces for those who are paralyzed in their own shame and pride that you would break through this morning, Lord God? But God, would your word accomplish its purpose this morning? And most of all, would we see Jesus even here in Psalm 3? Would you help me to do that this morning as your servant? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's where I'm going today. There is an outline in your bulletin, and I've got three Ps for those of you who like that kind of thing in your outlines, okay? Um, we're going to look at the first point is the problem. The second point is the provision. And the third point is the plea. So everything I say this morning is going to be driving at answering this two-part question. Where should we turn in the midst of our trouble and our overwhelming problems, and Why? Okay, everything I'm saying is going to be answering that two-part question. So I already heard y'all are going to do like a read-through or something with Chronicles of Narnia. And so how great that we get to point you there again this morning. There's a story that I think can help us from Chronicles of Narnia, the classic series by C.S. Lewis in the third book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So in that story, there's this miserable boy named Eustace Scrub, and he's just basically terrible. He's the worst. All right, he is... He is bitter about everything. He kind of bites at everybody with everything he says. He kind of sneers at everything he doesn't like. And every, it's just, he's, he's terrible, right? And so as the story goes, they're on this journey on the Dawn Treader, and they happen upon this island. And Eustace has already demonstrated in many other ways that he's a deeply selfish guy. He is only about himself. And he finds something that is like his crack on this island. He finds this huge pile of treasure. And he is so excited about this treasure. It's like, it's almost like the, the old like ducktails, you know, or Scrooge like dives in the pile of gold kind of thing and is swimming in it. Like that's kind of the picture is that Eustace is like, like snow angeling on treasure and, and he passes out taking a nap, so satisfied on this treasure. And what happens is when he wakes up, 
He has been transformed. His inner character has now become his outward appearance to match. He is transformed into a beast. Not just a beast, but specifically a dragon. And at first, he kind of likes it. He kind of likes being a dragon, because now he can do some dragon stuff. I'm not going to lie. It'd be kind of fun to do dragon stuff for a few minutes, I guess. So the problem is, is that it doesn't just go away. So he kind of feels like, ah, uh, this might be a problem. This being a dragon thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. And he starts to feel desperate. And he starts to feel overwhelmed. Stuck in a mess of his own making, if you follow me. So he begins to despair. He can't fit back on the boat that he got there on. So now he's, he's afraid that he's going to be left on this island there forever. He's, he's terrified of the prospect of being perpetually isolated, even though he's been kind of a jerk to everybody. So the good lion Aslan shows up, as he always does in these stories. And he tells Eustace that he has to undress and jump in this, cl this uh, clear pool of water. And what Eustace understands when Aslan tells him to undress is that he knows he has to take the dragon scales off. So what does Eustace do? He begins clawing and trying to get them all off on himself. The late Tim Keller summarized it in one of his books. He says, Eustace begins to claw and gnaw off the scales, and he realizes that he can shed his skin working at it. And he finally peels off this skin, but to his dismay, he finds that underneath he's got another dragon skin. He tries a second time and a third time to no avail. The same thing happens each time. Our problems can be like that dragon skin. It's like we're trying to handle it on our own. We see the scales, and we're like, you know, if I just try hard enough, I can handle it on my own. Thank you very much. You stay out of it. We think we can claw or chew them off enough on our own. But when we realize that some of our problems get so big that we end up feeling as anxious about overcoming them as Eustace did in this story. That can be in difficult marriages. That can be in broken relationships between parents and children. That can be in, uh, in fallout from bad business or financial or health decisions. There comes a point where we know that there is no amount of clawing and chewing that is going to get the scales off. There is no hope unless there is mercy. So let's look at the first point, the problem. What was the problem that David was facing, okay? The occasion of this psalm is when David fled from his son Absalom. That note there in the first part that I read, a psalm of David when he fled from, his, uh, from Absalom, his son, that's not an English translator's editorial note. That's in the Hebrew. It's part of the package deal of Psalm 3. So it gives you the context, and, and it, it matters. It gives depth to what you're going to read after you get past that line, even though in your English, English Bible you have one next to, O Lord, not the context. All right? So if we know our Bible story we know that uh, there's a lot that's going on with this situation that David finds himself downstream of. We know that he is facing the consequences of some of his own actions as we're engaging with Psalm 3. So it great, the context gives us a great deal of depth. The scripture records really vividly how the kingdom was when David was faithful and obedient to the Lord and how the kingdom changed after David sinned with Bathsheba. I'm sure most of you know that story in here. 
And the fallout from that sin long term ends up fracturing the kingdom with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So Absalom's rebellion is just a little tiny taste of the chaos that would follow after David's death when Solomon comes to the throne. And then there's the succession of all the kings that follow. And it's, it, it's like, a, it's like a, a gross HBO series with how bad it is, all the backstabbing and, and maneuvering. I mean, it's, it's pretty rough. So David had several wives. And in this particular story, after his sin with Bathsheba, in this, this story focusing on Absalom's rebellion, it focuses really on three of David's children, two of them with, from one of his wives and one from a different one of his wives. So you have Amnon, who is one of David's, his David's firstborn son from one of his wives. Then you have Absalom and Tamar, who were born from a different mother. And what happens is, long story short, Amnon becomes infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar, and he rapes her. And when David finds out about it, he's very angry. The king who is charged with justice and righteousness in the kingdom. And you know what he does? Nothing. He fails to act. He does not work justice in this situation with his children and this assault that has happened. And the text tells us that Amnon, Tamar's brother, full brother, hated Amnon from that point forward. So a few verses later down below, you can read all of this in 2 Samuel 13 and following. So a few verses below that passage, two years later at a special occasion, Absalom waits until Amnon is drunk, and he has his servants murder him. He has his servants murder Amnon to avenge his sister. So we don't have to have the deductive reasoning powers of Sherlock Holmes to connect the dots to why Absalom would later rebel against his father, David, the king of Israel the author of Psalm 3. So in verses 1 and 2 in our English translation, we get the king's response to the realization that he is in very real danger of being overwhelmed. He's afraid for his life. And we know that from 2 Samuel 15, verse 6, it tells us that Absalom made political moves so that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So Absalom has dreams now of settling every dispute and cause, doing justice, because after all, the king who had been set apart to do this thing failed to do justice in the case of his sister, Tamar, who now has to live with him in refuge because her life is ruined in her culture now that she's been raped and her virginity has been stolen by her brother. He will do justice because his father is not, is Absalom's logic. So even though David fled with his entourage, he's afraid of being overwhelmed. In 2 Samuel 16, there's a man named Shimei. And as Absalom is fleeing, there's this guy Shimei, and he is just cursing David, just cursing him. He's throwing rocks at the crowd, like the, the, the train as they go by, and he's just cursing David. And I cannot help but wonder, when we look at this psalm, if those curses are still ringing in David's head when he says, that they say of me, there is no salvation for him in God. I wonder if David was thinking about Shimei. So his son Absalom turned the hearts of the men of Israel against him, and David faced a very real threat of death at the edge of a sword. David's actions 
are inseparable from the course that Absalom took. What a mess. What an absolute tragedy. What is your inclination? Where does your head go? Where does your heart go when you are faced with a mess of your own making? As you answer that, you're beginning to identify, even in a small way, with David's overwhelming threat to his safety. So the problem is that David is vulnerable, he's exposed, he's in danger. David is afraid of being overwhelmed by the problems that face him, okay? So where does David turn in the shadow of this trouble that threatens to undo him? This is the second point. What is the, what has God provided? Where, where, what does David have left as he flees the city, right? In verses three through six, they show us where David turned, where he felt vulnerable and exposed. Verse three says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my, my glory and the lifter of my head. David just described God as a shield, not just to his front, not as some kind of rear guard, not just support on the right flank, support on the left flank. No, he's described God as a 360 degree bubble of protection all around him. So, you know, uh, the ancient phalanx formation from warfare, Patriot air defense missile systems, uh, body armor, armored cars, uh, the M1 Abrams tank, ain't got nothing on what God is doing for his servant, David, by being a shield all around him. He knows, David knows that his glory was not that he was anointed as king, though he was. His glory is not that he defeated Goliath, though he did. Get this, this is the good stuff. His glory is God himself. His glory is God himself. The presence of God is his glory. In the midst of his trial, in his trouble, that threatens to overwhelm him because of his own failures and sin, God is his glory. And nobody can take that from him. I wonder how discouraged David might have felt as a human being as a real human being who lived in time and space, looking at, in his quiet nights when he lays down to sleep and he thinks about why he's fled, why Absalom is coming after him, I wonder how discouraged he could have felt. Head hung low, but get this. God is the lifter of his head. This is the language of someone who knows intimate friendship with someone who was there for you when you hit rock bottom, when things are at their absolute worst. That is how David knows the Lord. In verse four, we get what is arguably the key verse of the text. Everything hinges on this. I cried aloud to the Lord. Was he met with silence? No, he was not. And he answered me from his holy hill. Even me, you might even say. This action makes all the difference in being trapped in the mire of shame and self-pity and foolish pride when we're afraid that we're going to be overwhelmed. So where do you turn when you're knee-deep in it? Where do you go? Do you double down and press on, kind of stubbornly fighting the unwinnable? Do you throw up your hands and kind of disassociate in some way? 
you know, have another drink, have a, you know, maybe, maybe some retail therapy, go buy something, maybe, maybe have another snack, another cupcake might help, right? Maybe, maybe stream the newest, like, Star Wars series on Disney or something, that'll distract me. Do you just try to change the subject in your head enough times until finally maybe the problem goes away? Or so you hope? Where do you turn? Will you turn to those things? Or will you turn to the one who has the power to save you in the midst of your trouble? Because that's what David has done. That's what David has done. Instead of being angry and doing nothing, as he did in the case with Tamar, he cries out to the Lord, and get this, the Lord answered him. So with this blessed assurance from God, David can place himself in the context, not first and foremost, of who he is and what he's done and all the big time stuff that David is. He doesn't, like, he doesn't rely on his resume. He doesn't rely on his works, if you will. But he finds himself in the context of who God is. He places himself there. And it's because the Lord is his shield, he sleeps and he awakes, sustained by God. His rest will not be stolen by the looming threat. He sees those against him all around in verse 6 as held at bay by the shield that is all around him in verse 3. The shield that is God himself. So when it seems like he's losing everything else, what has the Lord provided? He's provided himself. It hasn't changed. He offers himself to you. You've heard it said, take my body, drink my blood. God offers himself as a provision. So we looked at the problem, we looked at the provision, now we're going to look at the plea, okay, this is the third point. Verse 7 is where we're going to go. We look at how does David respond as he remembers, uh, as he remembers the Lord. So verse 7 is David's prayer from verse 4 kind of spelled out, okay? Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. He trusts that God has the power to overcome whoever and whatever threatens him. The threat of rebellion against the Lord's anointed is not going to make the God who breaks the teeth of the wicked back down. David confesses that salvation belongs to the Lord, and he pleads not only for himself, but also for his people that they too would be blessed. So David pleads for the very things that God has promised to do, because God is a covenant God, and he has made a covenant with his people to be their God and for them to be his people, and he will not break that covenant, which is really good news considering the fact how often God's people should sing with their whole chest, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, but not him. That's not who God is. He never leaves. He never turns his back on his even in the midst of their own mess that they made for themselves. So let's talk a little bit about how to apply this. What do we do with this? You may not be fleeing for your life today. You're probably not. I don't think anybody's on the run this morning, probably in here, you know, trying to keep a low profile. But I bet there are things in your life that feel like they threaten to overwhelm you. 
responsibilities of some fashion, problems that are spinning out of control, work demands, financial problems, marital dysfunction, estranged children and family members, addictions, health problems. I could go on and on. There are all kinds of things that probably feel, if you think about it long enough, it feels a little overwhelming. Maybe you are facing sin this morning that feels like it just won't go away and you've been facing it on your own. Maybe you've tried fleeing from it again and again and again, but there you are, sitting in fresh shame and guilt. Can anyone relate? You don't have to say amen out loud. But I want you to listen to me. No matter where those troubles are coming from, no matter what shape they have taken, it is in these troubles, not apart from them, that God will meet you. He will meet you in your troubles. Your life does not have to be put together in order to have an encounter with the living God. He will meet you in your trouble. Seek, and you will find him there. He is the Lord who saves his people. Are you stuck facing trouble alone because you're ashamed that you helped bring it on yourself? Christ invites you to freedom in him. Turn to Christ in your trouble. Look to him to save you. Look to Jesus, King Jesus, the greater David, who cried out when his enemies surrounded him, but he would not be spared from suffering and death as David was. Look to Jesus, the greater David, who bowed his head in death for sinners, as David praised God for being the lifter of his head. Look to Jesus, the greater David, who cried out on the cross and was met with silence. When the Lord answered David when he cried out to him from his holy hill, look to Jesus, the greater David, who was struck as though he were one of God's enemies when David praised God for striking his enemies. Look to Jesus, the greater David, when David had laid down and slept and was sustained by God, and he woke because the Lord had sustained him. Jesus would be laid down in death and would rise again in glory on the third day. Look to Jesus. The day is coming when Christ will return. And the greatest thing that threatens to overwhelm any of us is the wrath of God due to us for sin. What will we do? Will we despair? Will we lie to ourselves and think we can try to handle it on our own? Or will we cry out to the God of salvation, save me, oh my God. I've got so much trouble with my own sin, never mind my finances, my relationships, my health. Jesus, be a shield all around me. Remove the filthy rags of my effort, my pride, and my shame, and clothe me with your robes of righteousness. You be my glory. You be the lifter of my head, Lord Jesus. So often, we either try to handle the things that threaten to overwhelm us in our own power, or we'd rather die in our shame, kind of like martyrs to our own pride. And this is especially true when we're guilty of causing the very problems that threaten to overwhelm us. The beauty of the one true God is that he hears our cries, whether we are overwhelmed by troubles completely apart from our actions, but also when we bear the guilt of having caused them ourselves. Eustace 
from Voyage of the Dawn Treader, tried to overcome having become a dragon himself. But the story takes a turn toward hope, even for a miserable boy like Eustace. He would have to look to Aslan to be stronger than him, to trust that Aslan was greater than that which threatened to overwhelm him. So after having tried to handle it himself, Eustace tells a story like this. He says of Aslan, I was afraid of his claws. I could tell you, but it was, I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt, and there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me, and he threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I turned into a boy again. Aslan, the figure who represents Jesus Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia stories, did something that Jesus does in the gospel. He saves us, even when we're at fault. He makes us who we are meant to be. He makes us people who are free from sin, fear, and death because of him. He is the one who loves us and saves us. David fled from the wrath of his rebellious son, and that is what threatened to overwhelm him. And like I said, you're probably not running for your life this morning like David was, but each and every one of us must account for the wrath of God due to us for sin, apart from Christ. Where will we flee from the wrath of God due to us for sin? And the craziest, most counterintuitive thing is what you have to do. It's what we must do. It's not hide, it's not run away, but it's to run to him. It's to run directly to the Lord. Why? You run to him, you run to Jesus Christ, because while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By his resurrection, we know that Jesus came to deliver everyone who turns to him by faith from the power of sin and death. So I asked the beginning question, the two-part question, where should we turn in the face of our overwhelming problems and why? Here's your one sentence. It is because the Lord saves his people that we should turn to Christ in our trouble. Don't wait till you think things are going to be better in some way that you fix it on your own. Turn to him in your trouble. It's in him we find relief. It's in him we find hope. It's in him that we have security that can never be taken from us. And his return will be a source of joy to all who believe. Do you know this hope? If you know this hope, rejoice again this morning in the God of salvation. The God who sees you and yet is so gracious to you, even you. Take joy through the power of the Holy Spirit, that in him you are safe. Would you like to know this hope? Is it foreign to you? Would you like to have a sure hope that whatever you're facing won't get the last word in your life? By faith, you can have this hope. Today is the day to pray and ask God to reveal it to you through the power of his son. This is your invitation. 
receive Jesus Christ by faith today. Either again, turn to him again and delight in him again, or turn to him for the first time today. Let's pray. Lord, it is very good news that you don't call us to clean ourselves up first before we turn to you. And it is very good news that you are to be found in the midst of our trouble as we turn to you in faith. God, thank you for this reminder that even David, even someone who made an absolute hash of his life as he got older, was still finding you to be the rock-solid, steady God that you have promised to be. Lord, we thank you for this promise. We thank you that we see your character amplified in sending your son, Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God who came to save sinners, who died for us while we were yet still sinners and rose again to give us hope. So God, no matter what people are facing here this morning, and I'm sure there are many things that people are facing this morning, whether it be fear of judgment for eternity or whether it be fear of what's going to happen when they go to work or school or that or that visit, Lord, I pray that you would meet them there in their trouble as they turn to you. So Holy Spirit, would you sync the words of these, these scriptures, not just Psalm 3, but all of the scriptures we've been meditating on this morning, would you sink these truths down deep into our hearts? Would you prepare our hearts as good soil in which the gospel might grow and bear fruit in season and out of season? So Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless us now as we continue to worship. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.